On April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin, the son of a Russian carpenter who grew up to be a Soviet cosmonaut, well, he became the first man to travel into space. And note, it wasn't America's Neil Armstrong or, or Buzz Aldrin or Alan Shepard. It was Yuri Gagarin, who was the first man ever in space. At 9.07 a.m. that April morning, his Vostok 1 spacecraft took off and orbited the Earth for all of an hour and 29 minutes. Nevertheless, presented by the Soviet Union as a triumph of that fiercely fought space race, the 27-year-old, who had just been chosen three days before the mission, he returned to immediate worldwide fame. He was awarded the Order of Lenin and given the title Hero of the Soviet Union. Monuments were raised to him, streets were renamed in his honor all across the country. But perhaps, perhaps the thing that remains the most famous about Gagarin's voyage some 60 years later isn't what he did, but it's supposedly what he said. Reportedly, when he returned to Earth, he carried with him one simple Soviet-style message. Quote, it's reported, he said, I looked and looked and looked, but I didn't see God. Now, you should know there are actually stories to the effect that Gagarin was actually a believer in God, and there's some debate about whether he actually uttered those words. But that didn't stop the Kremlin, who produced this propaganda poster. It features an image of the cosmonaut floating in space and the slogan, there is no God. I went to the heavens, I looked and I looked. There is no God. It was a sentiment that in the 1960s was not unwelcomed. In fact, a few years later, John Lennon would forever cement that seemingly romantic thought in his best-selling single, Imagine, a song that's counted as one of the 100 most performed songs of the 20th century. And that's why I know you know the line. It famously starts, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. And here comes the blissful conclusion possible only if you were to believe, imagine all the people living for today. Well, some 40 years later now, I don't think we have to imagine so much. I think we live in that imagined world where few people believe in heaven or hell and people are living just for today. I'm just not so sure it's all that Lenin imagined it would be. Guys, welcome back to Creed, our, our shared deep dive into the Apostles' Creed, the oldest statement of the Christian faith. It was developed some 1,500 plus years ago. Now, we're studying the Creed together, this ancient statement of truth, because we live, and I would argue incrementally so, in times where lies are triumphing. I just gave you a huge one. There's no heaven, there's no hell, and if everybody would just believe that, get over it, then there'd be peace on earth. Well, I would tell you that it's into this abyss of man's wisdom that the creed pushes back with God's truth. We're studying to creed together so that we can define that truth. We can correct those errors, those errors of human wisdom. We're trying to connect to the faith of our fathers and summarize what it is we say we believe. We're trying to outline the terms of our Christian unity. And so towards that end, can I ask you to join with me again this morning in reciting the Apostles' Creed together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, last week, well, last week we dealt with what we called the old A&W root beer third pound burger of our statement. He descended into hell. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about or what a hamburger has to do with Hades, go check that out online. But today we're moving on. The creed in the next one sentence talks about two foundational bedrock events, events that are just as historically verifiable um, and I would argue as believable as any other contemporary first century event. Those are the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, who, as we learned earlier in the creed, is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus the only Son of God. Now, I've been saying every week, the creed is not what we, is not what we believe the Scriptures to be, the inspired Word of God, but it's pulled from those Scriptures. So I want to jump into them this morning with some reporting by the Greek first century physician turned historian, a man named Luke. Now, Here's what we know about Luke. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't walking and talking with Jesus every day. But, but Luke, this educated Greek man, he set out to, well, actually, here's what he set out to do in his own words. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Luke is trying to help a man named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is, but Luke calls him most excellent, so he's believed to be somebody of some honor or rank or position. Luke is writing to him to, to, to try to help him to do what we're trying to do, to know what it is that we believe Luke says, to know the certainty of those things. Now, Luke is not a one-hit wonder. Most of you know there are four books in your New Testament that we call the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke wrote one of those four accounts of Jesus' life, but he also wrote a second book, a sequel, if you will, picking up where his Gospel left off. It's right after the book of John in the New Testament. It's called the book of Acts. So we're going to get started there this morning. And Luke begins in a very similar fashion. Here's what he wrote. In my former book, Theophilus, still writing to him, I wrote, all, I, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So stop there for a second. Luke starts with the resurrection of Jesus. And not just in some whimsical, old wives' tale, children's book kind of way. Luke reminds Theophilus, he goes, remember now, my goal was to show you, we'll call him Theo for now, my goal was to show you, Theo, to prove to you the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And so he says Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Guys, here is the truth. 
on the two events we're talking about today, our entire faith hangs. It depends on these two things, Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension. You see, without both of these things being true, well, actually, the Bible itself says that if they're not, we're to be the most pitied of men for wasting our lives believing lies. Now, every Easter, this Easter, next Easter, I tell you why you should believe in the historical fact, uh, uh, the verifiable truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I do every Easter what Luke has done in his gospel for Theophilus. Now, I don't have the time to go into depth on those things this morning, but Luke did in his gospel. Some of these proofs include things like the empty tomb. I challenge you, go look at every conceivable explanation as to how Jesus' tomb wound up empty. And you can invalidate every one of them except for one. That Jesus somehow was resurrected to life and walked out of it. I could go on the fact that Luke records that it was women who found the tomb empty. Remember now, a woman's testimony wasn't even allowed in courts in the first century. If the story of his resurrection was made up, you would never make it up with women as the primary eyewitnesses. I mean, you would only do that if it, well, if it actually happened. The Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthian church that over 500 people had seen Jesus alive over those 40 days that Luke wrote to Theophilus about. In fact, Paul challenged people to go interview all of the eyewitnesses. He says you can go talk to them. They're still alive. I'd actually argue Paul himself was as big a proof as any. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament and became the apostle of apostles, Paul was a Pharisee. He was the highest of officials in the Jewish temple, and he was chief persecutor of the early church. Luke actually tells Theophilus about Paul in this book of Acts. I mean, check this out. Luke writes, quote, As for Saul, and that was Paul's Hebrew name, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He would go on. He goes, Then Saul, still breathing out threats and murder, serious stuff, against the disciples of the Lord, he was so incensed that he went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that's what the early church movement of Jesus was known by, the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. That was who Paul was. Now, how do you go from persecutor and prosecutor to prophet and priest? How can you explain what happened to them other than what Paul said himself happened to him? That on the road to Damascus, he met the resurrected, the very living and alive Jesus of Nazareth. Paul's life, I mean, his life is just one of many lives that were changed uh, from the resurrection. Without the resurrection, it would be inexplicable. I can give them to you, Jesus' brother James. Well, the scriptures say that James thought Jesus was mad. I mean, if your brother told you that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, wouldn't you think he's crazy? But sometime later, James goes on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the Son of God and for you to give up your life to serve him? What about the disciples? Every one of them, Peter included, locked behind closed doors, denying Jesus after his crucifixion. Heck, John's the only one that even showed up at the crucifixion. And they're scattered all in fear. 
But days later, suddenly, they're out in the streets preaching about this Jesus of Nazareth. They're being publicly flogged for refusing to stop. All of them, Peter included. Peter, who was once afraid of a schoolgirl in the public square when she said that he had been with Jesus, now all of them willingly go to their deaths proclaiming over and over and over that Jesus was the Christ, the only Son of God and Lord. There is only one explanation for these things. It's the one that these proofs led Luke to write the Theophilus about, that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. See, our faith hangs on this truth, but not this truth alone. Luke goes on. Theophilus, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, his disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he said this, or excuse me, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. You know, it's kind of interesting if you think about it. The church spends, well, I mean, heck, we're about to do the same thing. We're about to spend a good month focusing on and celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus. The church spends, we spend a good month on Good Friday and Easter, celebrating, remembering the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. This event, though, that Luke is chronicling, both here in Acts and at the end of his gospel, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father, it's something we hardly ever mention. I mean, it's on the church calendar. Everybody has a church calendar. The day is just as Luke wrote. It comes 40 days after Easter. But think about it. I mean, have you ever gone to an Assumption Eve party? Have you ever eaten an Assumption Day ham? Yet the Apostles' Creed, when it boiled down what was essential to believe, it spends, relatively now, an inordinate amount of words on Jesus' ascension. And so the question is, why? It's the big deal. I mean, why is it so important to believe and why would it matter to me? You know, it shouldn't have come as a surprise to them, to the disciples. Jesus had told them repeatedly he's going to die, that he's going to be resurrected, and that he was going back to be with his father. You know, I heard a stat this week, it was pretty interesting, they, that when they ask people to rate their favorite um, chapters in the Bible, two consistently come back. One is 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you know that's the, the uh, love chapter that Paul wrote. Love is patient, love is kind. You hear it at almost every wedding. And then the one that tends to run second, well, that's, that's John 14. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral, you know that one. Here's what Jesus said. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Which leads me to a rather simple conclusion that he looked out at the disciples and he realized, well, their hearts were troubled. And why? Well, if you just go back a couple of verses, you'll see why. In John 13, Jesus had just told them, quote, my children, I will only be with you a little longer. You're going to look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. You see, their hearts were troubled because Jesus was telling them, and, and this is Jesus, the Jesus they believed in, the Jesus they left everything to follow, the Jesus that led them away from family and friends, the Jesus they were convinced would protect and provide for them and give them a position in an earthly kingdom. Suddenly, he's telling them he's leaving, and he's leaving them behind. Of course, their hearts were troubled. See, initially, the concept of Jesus leaving the disciples, it creates within them this heart of great sorrow. But here's what's super interesting. Luke records what actually happened when Jesus did leave. Quote, when he had led them, the disciples, this is Jesus, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, Jesus lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. It's the ascension again. Then they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem. Now, how'd they return? Depressed and filled with sorrow? confused and racked with fear? Because that's what you might think. That's just not what happened, though. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So much joy, in fact, that at their own peril, they stayed continually at the temple praising God. What happened? What changed? I'll tell you what happened. They got it they understood the power and the purpose and the potential of the ascension. Its truth literally changed them, their outlook, their lives. And I can't help but think if we got it, it would change ours too. I, I like how Tim Keller uh, explains it. He says, look, it's just, just as it's ridiculous to build a beautiful house and have nobody live in it, just as it's ridiculous to cook a wonderful meal and have nobody eat it, just as ridiculous as it would be to build a huge bomb to, to level a mountain in order to make a road, but not have a detonator on the bomb? He says, so the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the things that we have holidays for, they are of no use without the ascension of Jesus, because the ascension of Jesus is the detonator for everything else he does. See, the ascension is that which takes what he said, what he was, what he did, and releases it out of Jerusalem into the universe and into each of our lives with all of its power. I, I love what Luke records the angels saying to the disciples. He, wrote, he writes that the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's as if the angels are saying to them, if you understood what just happened, you would not be standing here. It's almost like he's, or they're chiding the disciples. 
Jesus has ascended. Don't just stand here looking at the sky. And we know from Luke they didn't. They went back to Jerusalem rejoicing, and they turned the city and the state and the world upside down because they got it. They understood what this ascension meant. Now, here's what I think they realized. First, first, the ascension does not mean that Jesus went up into the sky. Please, don't be depressed every time we send somebody into space and they don't find God. Jesus is not floating around somewhere in space. Of course, Gagarin did not see him, and you can go as far out as you want into space. You're not going to find God. You're not going to trip over him up there. Jesus, well, in the incarnation, he chose to leave heaven, which exists outside of space and time. Remember, we talked about this earlier in the creed. Jesus has existed eternally. Jesus is the creator of space and time. He chose to leave heaven and enter space and time as a human being. We talked about this. Fully God, fully man. At the moment of Jesus' ascension, Jesus now leaves the realm of space and time and goes back to where he came. He now exists with God the Father in heaven, outside of space and time, outside of his creation. See, what made the disciples move from sorrow to joy, uh, from stillness to fearlessness, is they understood what that meant for them and their lives. It's why the angels looked at them and said, do you understand what just happened? I, I can show it to you scripturally. Some of you know the story after the women find the tomb empty and Jesus resurrected. Mary Magdalene, when she realizes it's him, do you remember what she does? She grabs on to Jesus as if to say, I, I have you now. I'm never letting you go again. I almost lost you, but I'll never let that happen again. Does anybody remember what Jesus said to her? John records it. I think we've misunderstood it. Jesus says, don't hold on to me, Mary, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Now, when we read that, right, we read it like, Mary, don't, 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 don't touch me. You'll ruin the whole thing. I'm clean or I'm pure. Don't touch me. But that doesn't make any sense. Because there's other places in the scriptures where the, the resurrected Jesus, where it records women touching him and Jesus doesn't say anything. Famously, he tells the, Thomas the doubter to touch his hands and his side. So, so what gives? What's he trying to teach Mary, this Mary that loves him, this Mary that he loves? What's he trying to teach Mary that the disciples figured out on their road back to Jerusalem? Well, here's what it is. Jesus, all that he is, I mean, his presence, his teaching, his authority, his power, his personhood, it is no longer contained in one place like it used to be. Jesus says, say, Mary, you don't want to hold on to me. If, if you let me go, if you let me ascend, you'll never lose me again. But if I stay here in space and time, there will always be things that will separate you from me. My love from you, my passion from you, my presence from you. Mary, if I stay, you'll only be able to experience those things when you're right next to me and with me. But Mary, I mean, you could get sick and, and wind up in the hospital. Mary, they could arrest you and, and put you in jail. 
Mary, they could kidnap you and hold you for ransom. See, if you hold on to me, you're going to be alone. I'll never be there with you in any place or circumstance of difficulty. But if you let me ascend, Mary, you can never lose me. In fact, I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus' ascension explodes his presence and his purpose and his power and his authority all over his created universe. He is not absent. He is increased. There is now nowhere you can go where Jesus is not. You know, you'll hear folks sometimes be like, well, you know, I just, I wish I was alive when Jesus was alive, or I wish I could be alive when Jesus returns. Guys, you are alive when Jesus is alive. He exists beyond time and space, and yet his presence dwells around you and within you. See, understand, here's some, here's some pushing back on lies and, and some understanding truth. The ascension means that Christians have no Mecca. We make no pilgrimages. When people tell you that, oh, I, I have a, a piece of toast over here with the Virgin Mary's face burned into it, don't sell your stuff and get a train ticket because of the ascension because Jesus did not stay confined in space and time. You're as close to him right now as you are ever going to be. That's why the angels looked at the guys and said, what are you doing? Get going. Stop staring at the sky. He's not here. He's with you. I mean, you couldn't go away from him. Don't you see? That's what made them so brave. They lived bold lives of faith, not, because of, not just because of the resurrection. I mean, right, not because resurrected Jesus was back in Jerusalem in the temple. They didn't live their lives hoping he might leave the temple and show up. They all went to their deaths knowing that he was right there with them, still in power, still in control. That's what the power of ascension can have in your life. Now, if you think I'm making that up, I'll, I'll, I'll show you proof of it. Stephen was the first martyr in the Christian church. He was the first person killed for his conviction, uh, convictions of Christ, who he was, and, and his refusal to deny Jesus. He gives this incredibly powerful sermon in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Luke records it he, for Theophilus in chapter 7 of Acts. And I mean, he's just so bold that the Sanhedrin is incensed at what he says. Here's what Luke recorded. He says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, his speech, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. Stephen should have known he was in trouble. Stephen should have been very afraid. Here is where Stephen should have taken back everything he just said. Here is where Stephen should have run like crazy. But, Luke records, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw what the creed professes. Jesus is ascended and Jesus sits in the position of authority in heaven. Stephen understood that Jesus was with him right now in control and in power. He was not back in the temple in Jerusalem. He was right there with them. And so what did the understanding of the ascension mean to him? 
Well, Luke says that at this, they covered their ears, and this is the Sanhedrin, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is persecuting the church. We already talked about the change it was in for him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out. Listen to what he cried out. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Do you see the power of the ascension? Even down to giving us the ability to forgive our enemies, those that are persecuting us, in his case, killing them. Because all those things seem so small and trivial. No wonder the angel said, guys, stop looking up and get about the, get about the word of God. Get about doing what he's told you to do. He's with you. Nothing can happen to you. Nothing can harm you. This same Jesus, who once spoke through the prophets before he came to the earth, now he speaks through you since he's left the earth. Don't just stand there. Go to all the earth and make disciples. Don't be afraid. Remember, there's that great exchange Luke recorded where the disciples say to Jesus, well, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, that time is not for you to know, but here's what I am going to do. Now is when I'm commissioning you to bring my kingdom to earth. You're going to do it. Stop standing there and looking at the sky. Look, two more things. Uh, Two more reasons the creed says we have to understand, celebrate, and venerate not just Jesus' birth and resurrection, but this moment of ascension. The first, I'm going to talk about it, we're going to talk, uh, I'm not going to talk about it today, we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks, right? Here's what Jesus said to the disciples, very truly I tell you, it's for your good, because they couldn't believe it, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send him to you. The Holy Spirit, who Jesus calls here the advocate, Jesus says, unless I go, the Holy Spirit won't come, and it's better for you if he were here and I wasn't. No ascension, no Holy Spirit. More on why it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit here in two weeks. But finally, there's this, and this is unbelievable. The angel said to the disciples, I don't know if you caught it, they said, why are you standing here looking up? And then they went on to say, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Those are three unbelievable words. I want you to hear them again this same Jesus. The angels are telling us something about the ascension which is unbelievable. It's that when Jesus ascended, he did not leave his human nature behind. He didn't take off his human clothes. You see, Jesus went back to heaven in a different condition, in a different way than he came. Jesus went back to heaven fully God all right, but he also went back fully human. Now, keep pressing on to this because this is crazy. Get this now. What the Scriptures say, what the Creed attests to, is that right now, at the right hand of God, what does that mean? What's the right hand of God mean? In the Scriptures, when you see something, when when it says the right hand of God, it's speaking of the place of honor and status. So when the Creed says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, it's affirming that he has equal status to the Father within the Godhead. He rules What does this mean? It's crazy. I pause to even say it. But what the creed affirms, 
What the creed affirms that the Scriptures teach is that right now there is a human being, a man, Jesus Christ, yes, fully God, but still fully human. There is a human being ruling the entire universe. Practically, that means two things. First, as we looked at this when we discussed Jesus being fully human, what it meant for us, the one that rules the universe knows you personally. He's for you. He understands you. He knows your temptations, your shortcomings. He not only sympathizes with you, the Scriptures, as we saw a few weeks ago, say that He intercedes with God the Father for you. The person ruling the universe knows, loves, and cares for you. He knows your name. He's not some Oz-like figure behind the stars. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the human being, ruling everything. Someone like you, that gets you, and is for you, is in charge. Here's the second thing. If you think that'll blow your mind, how about this one? Whose behalf, on whose behalf is this human being, Jesus, fully God, fully human, on whose behalf is he ruling the universe? Well, here's what Paul told the Ephesians. He prayed that they would understand this, and I hope you will too. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his, inglor uh, his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. That's the position Jesus holds. And what is he doing there? Here comes the incredible part. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you catch that? When God seated Jesus at his right hand, at this position of power and authority, he now rules everything for the church, for his people. This is crazy, but Jesus, fully human, Jesus is ruling the universe, and if you're a believer, he's ruling the universe for you, for your good ends. Everything that happens happens for a reason? It sure does. And it happens for you. And you're good. Now, I know it doesn't always seem like that. I know it doesn't always feel that way. But it's true. This is why Paul was able to tell the Romans. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. I mean, we love that verse and it comes compliments of the ascension. It's made possible by the ascension. The ruler of the universe, it turns out he's human, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he's working the entire universe for your good, for your benefit. Do you get why the disciples, when they understood this, were sad no more? 
Do you see one empowered them to live without fear and change the world? And now do you see why the angels said to them, well, don't just stand there. Do something. Jesus' people, they once got this. They understood what the ascension meant, and they changed the world. Some of them still do, and some of them still are. I'm going to close with this last picture. It's so, it just blew my mind. I just fell upon this on my own, right? This is one, two. is a picture of Russian cosmonauts. See, today, Russian spacemen are, not, are towing a very different line. Recently, Oleg, or I want to get the name right, Artem, Artemyev, o Oleg Artemyev, you can check out his Instagram page. He posted a photograph of himself and two of his countrymen on his page, standing in front of, in the space station, half a dozen religious icons that were attached in this multi-billion dollar international space stations. Two of the Russians were wearing icons that they had pinned on their bodies. Now, I don't know if you can do this at home, but I zoomed in. Do you know what they are? It's the cross of Jesus Christ surrounded by all kinds of pictures of Jesus. You see, in the Soviet era, publicly saying that you believed in God was a surefire way to ruin your career or earn a one-way ticket to the gulag. But today, Jesus is in their space station. Do you know why? I don't know who it was, but somebody discovered the power of the ascension. Somebody stopped standing there and looking up at the heavens. Someone started living like Stephen, who saw that that same human Jesus on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I hope, I pray, that in understanding the power and the purpose of his ascension, you will too. Now, Stop just standing there. <laughs>